spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David E. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Chaminade University. Aloha, happy Aloha Friday. We have made it through another week and we are so glad that all of you are here to join us on Spotlight Hawaii. Please type your questions in the comments because Ryan, today we've got a guest who we've been wanting to speak to for some time to really give us an insight to the virus and where the spread is right now. That's right, we wanna bring in right now uh, from the Department of Health State Epidemiologist, Dr. Sarah Kimball, who's joining us this morning. Good morning, thanks so much for uh, joining us here. Thank you for having me. Uh, we want to start off with just getting a better idea of where we're at right now. Obviously, we just saw the new numbers uh, that are being released, and uh, we see the spread that continues on here in our community. Uh, as an epidemiologist and as you've been studying this virus, what can you tell us uh, about where we're at right now? Yeah, I'm looking really at the trends. And when I look at the seven-day trends, um, what's concerning is on August 29th, we saw a seven-day peak daily average for the state of 897 cases per day. And even today, looking at today's counts, 867 for our seven day average today is not much better. So we're pushing 900 cases a day as a daily average and we're not seeing much relief from that at this point. Um, with the hospitals telling us they are nearing or at or even over capacity in some cases, this is a great concern. You know, I want to talk about those deaths for a moment because we focus so much on the case count. Seven deaths reported today. Uh, we understand that in the last 24 days, the Department of Health has reported 24 deaths. When uh, looking deeper at those numbers, you know, some of those folks are really young. I'm looking at some of the data here. A man between 30 and 39, another man between 40 and 49. Now, a lot of those say underlying conditions. When we talk about underlying conditions and associated with deaths, how broad is that definition? What, what counts as an underlying condition? For our data collection, and in the last three, it's actually the last three days we've had 24 deaths reported. Um, we, we are looking at um, basically all conditions. It could be anything from high blood pressure. So having an underlying condition is a pretty broad group. There are some really good studies that have been done through hospital systems or published by the CDC that look at more detailed breakdown of the types of conditions that are most associated with severe disease. Uh, but we are actually seeing a lot of people who may have only one or two underlying conditions, um, taking a blood pressure med, for instance, that are still ending up in the hospital. When we look at what's happening in the community and, and we know that the Delta variant has really impacted all sectors and all areas within our state, but is there any uh, area specifically that you're seeing a more community spread than others and what it might be attributed to? I know the clusters or something else that you folks are tracking, uh, but what are you seeing in terms of any trends and locations uh, that you've been noticing? Geographically, where we're seeing the most cases are in communities with the lowest vaccination rates. So we can definitely draw a clear correlation there that the communities that are still less than 50% vaccinated, some even uh, still around 30% vaccinated, we're seeing really high case rates in those communities. When we look at settings, 
Um, many of the themes that we've covered in our cluster reports continue. So uh, we still see a lot of clusters happening in restaurants, food service, bars. Um, a lot of the ones that we detect are among employees in restaurants. Uh, and part of the reason for that is it's really easy for us to ask somebody, where do you work? But to try to get it, if you, if you, if I asked you right now, um, where have you been outside your house in the last 14 days? How are you even going to begin to tell me that? So um, we don't always know if there was a connection between one patron at a restaurant and another patron at a restaurant. But we do see that there's a lot of disease transmission happening uh, among employees, which raises concern. You know, when we try to decide what activities are safe and not safe, I'm just interested in your own life. How often do you do grocery shopping versus do you do grocery delivery? Do you still go out to restaurants? Do you still go to retail? How, what, how do you advise people basically to safely navigate our community right now? I'll be honest, I haven't been shopping in weeks because I've been working, but um, my family members that do go shopping uh, take great caution when they go. They're all vaccinated for starters and they wear their mask correctly and consistently the whole time and are sure to perform hand hygiene before and after going in. And restaurants and things like that, do you go, I mean, I know you work a lot, but what are what is your advice on that? Are you of the mind that it's a takeout only kind of a situation right now? Do you still think it's safe to dine out? Uh, personally, I would stick to takeout and, um, you know, outdoor dining with plenty of space with you and your members of your own household uh, might be an option, but right now is a time to play it safe. You know, if you're thinking about seeing people that are outside of your household, I would defer that right now. You know, that is one uh, a question that I, I think many people are, are struggle with right now because uh, there was the message, obviously, in the early on, once the vaccine was becoming more available, that many people uh, got the message that if I'm vaccinated and I'm with someone else that's vaccinated, then we're safe. Uh, and essentially now people are being told to stay at home, take extra precaution. Uh, how has that message changed overall? Why have we gone into this point where uh, those who are vaccinated and are hanging out with other vaccinated people uh, are still a risk compared to what messaging was uh, delivered earlier on? Right. No, this is a great question. You know, the number one thing I want to say is that we know that vaccines work. They're safe and effective. What they do best is prevent severe outcomes. So hospitalization, death, those serious outcomes of disease. What we are learning about vaccines is they don't prevent every single infection, even if you're fully vaccinated. So mild to moderate infection is still possible. And it's even possible for you to transmit the virus to another person if you're fully vaccinated, although it's much less likely. For those reasons, right now with the level of transmission we're seeing in the community at large, even if you are fully vaccinated, you're not fully protected. You're surrounded by so many opportunities to be infected that you have to add on those layers of mitigation and keep you and your family and your community safe. You know, the last time you were on here uh, was before the start of school and we were talking about mitigation members because our um, mitigation measures because obviously the majority of kids are not vaccinated right now. Do you think that schools are safe or do you feel like in-person learning is okay to continue? Right now, you know, we're working really closely with the Department of Education and other schools, independent and charter. Um, so I can tell you firsthand, this is a really trying time for the schools. It's really challenging. Teachers, principals, school administrators are working around the clock to keep schools safe. Um, what's challenging is that we're seeing a ton of cases in the community. 
And when there's cases in the community, there's going to be cases that impact the schools. There's going to be students who test positive and, and staff who test positive. And each time someone tests positive on a school campus, the school has to respond, make sure that everyone who could have been in contact with that person is notified and knows what to do. Um, that's a lot of work. So I certainly feel for them. What we are seeing as we investigate um, cases in schools and potential clusters is a spillover effect. And we've talked about this before. Uh, for instance, we've had clusters in schools where when we look back and we do the um, upstream contact tracing work, we actually find that the majority of students involved were attending a summer camp outside of that school setting and happened to bring that in after they finished summer camp and started attending school. So that creates a really challenging situation for the schools. I will say that um, the layered mitigation though is really minimizing transmission in the school setting. One of the things that we know that uh, has been an issue uh, in the past was contact tracing. And, and we know that the state has added more positions to help alleviate that need uh, in the community as this uh, virus has continued on. Uh, given where we're at right now with the number of cases that we're seeing, how are the contact tracers being able to keep up uh, with all of these cases that are coming through? Are, are some of these people slipping through the cracks and, and following up for those that do test positive? It's tough. When we're facing some days case counts of 1,100, 1,600 coming in in a single day that need to be assigned out, that's a lot of people to call. We've got teams on around the clock making calls, trying to reach every single positive. Um, but there are people who don't pick up the phone. And if we can't get you on the first or second try, we're probably moving on. So we definitely know there's people out there who aren't being reached. Oh. And Yenji is uh, muted. Uh, there's still a lot of questions. I'm reading some of these comments about schools. Do you see clusters? I know that you said when you when you sort of um, when you backtrace it, it's not necessarily originating in schools. Are we seeing clusters though in the school setting right now, or for the most part, is it the community then bringing it to school? So in this last cluster report released yesterday, we have an all-time high of 70 clusters that we are currently investigating in the state. Of those 14 are in educational settings, uh, not all K-12, but there are some K-12s in there. And so we are seeing some cluster situations. Some of those are really driven by circumstances outside of the school. And that's part of what we're trying to figure out when we put a cluster on the board and we start investigating it. We don't know where the transmission occurred yet, but we do that investigation to try to find out. There are some instances where transmission may be happening within school too. And that's where we get on the phone with the schools and figure out what can be done to minimize and mitigate so that doesn't happen. If you can talk us through that investigation process, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, so if a school reports or there is a cluster and you're working with the principals and you're trying to do that investigation, I mean, uh, how long does that normally take? Because I imagine with so many different variables that come into play with the school, with teachers, with staff uh, and other support personnel, and just trying to trace all of that, that seems like it could take some time. And by that point, I mean, uh, I imagine it would take a few days and, and who knows what, what might happen and how much more would spread. But if you can take us through that investigation process and what that looks like. Yeah, that's right. It is an intensive process and it does take time. That's part of the reason why um, cluster investigation is best used to learn lessons and apply them going forward as policies because you're not gonna be able to impact what already happened as you do that investigation and work. Now, that being said, part of the cluster investigation and response process 
is letting the setting know what they need to do right away to take immediate action to prevent further spread. That might mean excluding people from a workplace or a classroom. It might sometimes mean shutting down temporarily that workplace or that classroom. So those are things we do off the bat while we buy the time to learn what happened. Once we learn what happened, that can be used to play it forward and figure out how to make things better. As an example, as we look at, for instance, a school cluster, we may find that there are five students who are all positive within a grade. But let's look at that more closely. Are they in the same classroom? Um, if we do have students in the same classroom, there's other factors. Are they siblings? Did they get together at a gathering on the weekend before that wasn't in the classroom? Did they ride the bus? So we're trying to figure out all those things and we may find, okay, this person was actually best friends with that other person who's in the other class that explains this case. They hung out at a birthday party the day before. Um, so those are the kinds of ties that we're trying to pull together and figure out. You know, the governor and the mayor and others have said that 500 cases in the hospital is really kind of the bright line right now, that if we get to that, um, they're really going to have to take some more severe lockdown measures that we won't simply have a choice because we don't have the staff and the services to give people what they need when it comes to health care. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green this morning on, on his social media reported that 448 people are in the hospital right now. Um, that obviously changes people check in, people check out, but that feels awfully close to 500. Given the numbers and the case counts that we're seeing, how soon do you think we could get to 500? Are you worried that we could get there relatively soon? Yes, one of my concerns is that the case counts that we see today uh, won't yet translate into hospitalizations for another, you know, two to ten days, sometimes even longer. So we there's a real lag between when the cases hit and when we start seeing the hospitalizations and deaths are even beyond that. So with still uh, that peak seven day average just having hit on August 29th, we haven't seen the full impact of that yet. We are gonna see more people showing up in emergency departments and filling hospital beds. In keeping with uh, hospitals and, and our numbers, uh, Joyce is asking, what percentage of those who are hospitalized are unvaccinated? What can you tell us about the current situation uh, of those who are unvaccinated and those who are vaccinated and are actually still in the hospital right now? I rely on the reports of my colleagues in the hospitals for who's currently in beds today. Um, that's not information that we're able to get right away in the course of our investigations. But what I'm hearing on the ground is anywhere from 10 to 15% of the beds currently filled are among fully vaccinated people. Um, so we do know that some fully vaccinated people are also being hospitalized. Remember that vaccine is gonna protect you from having the virus go deeper into your lungs and cause that more severe type of infection. But for a lot of people, um, especially those with underlying conditions, even getting a normal run-of-the-mill upper respiratory infection can sometimes you know, really throw things off and, and, and land somebody in the hospital even if um, they don't have that, uh, th that more um, profound impact of the direct influence of COVID-19. I want to get your thoughts just overall on the trends that we're seeing. Do you think we are at the peak of our sort of surge right now, or is there more to come? I wish I knew. There's a lot of projections and interest in models. I, of course, I'm interested too, but on some level, I have to plan for the worst case scenario. And when I look at the numbers who remain unvaccinated in our state, I, I realize that this could go, there's nothing that would 
mean that it, it would necessarily stop without some kind of in intervention. There's enough people out there still unvaccinated to continue seeing this high a level of case rates for a very long time. So what could stop that? What could change that? One is vaccination, but vaccination is not fast enough if we're talking about 440 people in the hospital today and a limit of 500, right? Um, some of that is already going to happen just from the infections that happened in the last two weeks. So that's where mitigation comes in. So this is where we have to follow these basic prevention measures. Stay home when you're sick, wear your mask in all places outside your household at this point. I would strongly recommend that. Avoid large gatherings and stick to those in your immediate household. When you're uh, enjoying Labor Day weekend this weekend, keep it with immediate family, um, connect with others through video and phone. You know, one of the things that uh, has been very uh, divisive and during this time, of course, has been those who do not believe in the vaccine and, and those who uh, are strongly advocating for people to get the vaccine. Uh, and yet one of the things that can help to highlight the efficacy of the vaccine is just overall data. And that seems to be lacking at times uh, with recognizing when we have a breakthrough case and when those who have been vaccinated are still coming down uh, with COVID-19. There was a recommendation that was brought up on this program uh, of having the governor sign a order that would require people who take a COVID-19 test uh, to identify at that point in time whether or not they have been vaccinated or unvaccinated, which would help the overall state uh, be able to record and identify these individuals and collect a much broader sample size of the, the numbers that distinguish vaccinated from unvaccinated and those who are getting infected. Do you think requiring uh, that information during time of testing could help the Department of Health? It's always helpful if we can get some of these core pieces of information right up front when somebody goes for their test. So some of the test, um, the questions at time of testing that are being asked are, you know, correct contact information is a big one. It would be great to have that vaccine information up front. The flip side of that is from having done um, other looks at vaccine coverage for other diseases like pertussis, we, we learned that self-report of vaccine is not the best um, way to measure that sometimes. Uh, so, so it's still going to be a challenge. The good news is there are, there are sites around the country that have done really good analyses already of um, with actually looking at people's vaccine records against their disease records and they can and they can actually assess the true effectiveness of vaccine in the different groups so we do have good data now to show us the strong effectiveness of vaccine against serious outcomes like illness and death but that also show us some um, decrease in the effectiveness of vaccine over time um, in the context of the delta variant so you know, we have information to help guide our policies and actions, even if we can't always get that exact information at the local level. Well, and addressing that idea of a decrease in efficacy of the vaccine, Jan's got this question. She says, why can't we start giving boosters to everyone so that we can avoid breakthrough vaccinated people from being in the hospital? Would boosters at this time more broadly, I know that they are available to some uh, of our population, but would, you know, broad broad booster shots, would that make a difference? The booster dose question is still being looked at and debated in the scientific community. Um, I think one thing to keep in mind is that um, when we look at the numbers in the hospitals, it is still predominantly far, far and away 
the unvaccinated that are filling most of these hospital beds. If we only had to care for fully vaccinated people who got sick enough to be in the hospital, we wouldn't be in a hospital crisis right now. So it really is the unvaccinated that need our primary focus. Um, in terms of boosters, I think there's a, it's definitely an interesting question. We have enough data to show that certain populations, especially those who have severe immune compromise, so people who are cancer patients, uh, people that have had stem cell transplants, they will benefit from getting a third dose of vaccine because they may not have been able to mount that full immune response with the initial two doses. For the general population where we do know there's initial immune response generated, it's not clear yet what the benefit's gonna be of that third dose or even what's the best timing of it, whether it should be the same formulation or not. There's a lot of unanswered questions. So I think if we keep our eyes on continuing to offer vaccine to those who have not yet had a shot, that's where we're gonna, we're gonna see the biggest benefit in terms of stopping the surge. Peter, uh, I'm not sure if you have this information available right now, but do you know what percentage of the population uh, have received are, are fully vaccinated and what percentage of the population have just received uh, that their first shot, if you will? Because we know that the, uh, just receiving at least one shot, that number uh, obviously is a lot higher than those who are fully vaccinated. Uh, and, and I ask because there just seems to be and, and we know that there is that incubation time between these two or this time between the first shot and the second shot that people have to wait uh, in order to get that. Uh, but there seems to be a, a very slow progress in us getting that fully vaccinated number up, even though we are making advancements on those who are getting that initial shot. There seems to be a, a, a lag time, if you will, of us really increasing that fully vaccinated number. If you can just elaborate a little bit more on that and, and how long that you think it might take for us to get to that full 70% of the entire population. That's fully vaccinated. Right. There, there is a lag time. And when we've looked at that lag time historically, it's about three to four weeks, which is actually the time that's indicated to wait before you get your second shot. Um, it feels like ages right now. But remember that this surge really has been over the last three to four weeks. So what is encouraging is where the curve had flattened out earlier in the summer for vaccine uptake, we are now seeing it pick up again. Um, it's not as high as it needs to be, but it is improving. And I think, you know, what it tells me too is while we keep uh, seeing this polarization of, you know, what can I believe is vaccine good or bad? There are actually a lot of people who just needed to get more information to talk to someone they trusted, a doctor, um, and, and they are coming around to get vaccinated. So that is still happening every day. And I, that really drives our mission at the department to continue to get that information to people, to continue to offer the vaccine because people will be able to make that choice with better information. You know, Joyce has an interesting question. She says, are you afraid that there are more people out there that have COVID but have not gotten to a, gone to a doctor or gotten any medical help? We know the case count today, for instance, 865 infections, but surely there are more. When we see a case count number, can we sort of estimate what the real number is beyond that? I wish we could, but you're, you're on a great point, which is that we count the tests that we receive. There's a lot of um, home test kits out there now that won't come to the Department of Health. So there may be people who test positive at home and, and they're not counted. There also are people who don't go to get tested and we won't know about them. I don't know what the differential would be, but yes, we can say that the case counts that we see right now are an underestimate of the true number of cases. Um, 
Hospitalizations, though, are a, a kind of a more um, reliable number to track in a way because, you know, if you're sick enough to go to the hospital, hopefully you are going to the hospital. And we, so we can see by those numbers what the true trends probably are. What would you advise for those? Uh, because we do know uh, those people who take the at-home test because we know that there are a number of options now available for those people who want to do a test uh, on their own. They may feel symptoms and they take the test at home. And, and what if it does come back positive? What would you recommend those individuals do? Should they call the Department of Health and report that they are positive? I mean, how do they then, um, I guess, report themselves if they feel well enough to just kind of stay at home and write it out? But what would you recommend for those individuals? What we're really trying to do and what we need to do, given the current volume of cases, is make sure people have the right information. So if you do that at-home test kit, you know what you're supposed to do with the result. If you're not sick enough to need medical care, it's appropriate to stay home. You don't have to call the Department of Health. You can just make sure that you are staying home for that 10 days after you're positive. Um, you also want to make sure that anyone you may have come into contact with within the two days before you, you got sick or tested positive knows that they might have been exposed and that they may need to go get a test. Um, for people that are uncertain about their result, you can call your doctor, you can go get another test in a validated laboratory to make sure. Um, so those are also options. But I really want everyone to have their at-home plan. Like, what would I do in a hurricane? What would I do if I tested positive? Know what your, what your isolation plan would be know how you would reach your close contacts and how they would quarantine. Um, there's a comment here from Lynn. It says, agreed that vaccination alone won't save us. We need stronger, more immediate mitigation me measures. One of those that is going into effect on September 13th here in, in the city and county of Honolulu um, is required vaccination passports or testing, if you will, uh, for certain venues, restaurant, gyms, what have you, that Mayor Blangiardi has put on the table. Do you think that vaccine passports and, and programs like that, what have you seen in other cities beyond ours? Do you think that that can make a difference in stopping the spread? I think anything that is gonna increase vaccine coverage is likely to reduce spread. Trying to evaluate how these programs have performed in other cities and other countries is really difficult because it's not a perfect experiment. You're not looking at just one factor. There's always multiple different things going on and that might have to do with uh, mitigation behaviors. It might have to do with new uh, vaccines being available or with changes in weather even. So it's hard to know which things made the cases go down in those instances. Um, what we do know is that getting higher levels of vaccine coverage will ultimately slow spread of this disease. And if we can get them high enough, it can even end the pandemic. One of the things that we of course are seeing uh, just online and through social media is just a bombardment of information. You know, There are a lot of different articles and people who are referring to studies that have been uh, shown to show th that the vaccines work. Studies show that the vaccine doesn't work. I mean, we look in our chat section right here alone, and there are many people who are referencing uh, different sorts of things and reports that they are reading. Uh, I think for many people in the community, it becomes overwhelming at times, not knowing what report can be trusted and how to disseminate the proper information and what is actual facts. I mean, as an epidemiologist who has studied uh, things and, and viruses and outbreaks, uh, what would you recommend for individuals out there to get uh, the most factual information possible? Yeah, getting good sources of information is really important. There, you know, as 
a physician myself and an epidemiologist, I've spent many years of training to learn how to think critically about scientific literature that comes out and try to assess what I believe to be true or not true. Um, you know, doctors are trained in this, other, um, other professionals are trained in this, but it can be hard as just, uh, a, you know, if you're just trying to sort through the various things around social media to figure out what to believe. I think some, so this is one reason to look at websites like from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And if you want to look at multiple sources, which people do, you want to not just look at one source, there's also really good information from many of the medical societies. Or talk to your personal doctor, um, but make sure that the info source that you're looking at is one that has um, people that have vetted that information and have that training to assess the studies. There's a lot of um, desire, I think, right now for to be the first, you know, even in the scientific community, to be the first one to find the answer to COVID-19. So there's still this gravitation towards easy solutions. Um, it's important to be level-headed when looking at all that data, and you want to see it in multiple studies, not just one. Um, I know we're almost out of time, so I want to give you an opportunity to share a final thought as we head into the holiday weekend. Ka'ili has this question that we all want to know, when will the cases start to drop? I know that you don't have a crystal ball. We did ask you about trends, um, but when, you know, when will the cases start to drop in your estimation? And in the meantime, what is your advice for our community? Right now, they will drop when people follow the mitigation guidance. So it really is something, you know, I talk with a lot of my colleagues in healthcare and in public health. Our healthcare workers are tired. Our public health workers are tired. They're working 24 seven around the clock to fight this terrible virus, but we can't do it alone. We need your help. We need your kokua. So we are asking everyone to follow these basic prevention measures. Stay at home if you're sick, wear your mask, stick to your Ohana bubble. This is not the weekend to go meet up with friends outside your household. All right, Dr. Sarah Kimball, thank you so much for spending your Friday morning here with us as we head into this uh, Labor Day weekend. We really appreciate all the information you shared with us this morning. Thank Aloha. you. Aloha, thank you so much. Well, great to hear from her, some sobering information there. One of the things I thought was really interesting we talked about at the top was this idea of the underlying conditions. We're seeing the reports of people who are dying from COVID. And um, you know, oftentimes it just says the, the gender, the age, and that they had an underlying condition. But she said an underlying condition can be something as simple as having high blood pressure and being on high blood pressure medication. Well, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a, a grave illness and that you also caught COVID. So that definition is very broad. It shows just how vulnerable you can be if you are unvaccinated. And she said, you know, the pan this this these trends end, the cases stop coming when we start following the science, start following the mitigation measures, and first and foremost, getting our community vaccinated. And really a starting reminder that she made uh, and she noted was that what we're seeing in the hospitals, of course, with uh, nearly 450 people right now in the hospital with COVID-19, that those numbers do not reflect it. really the, the trend that we saw in the 700 number average that we saw for the uh, last week. And th that is almost uh, a little concerning when she when you think about it, she says, because of the amount of patients that we could see entering our hospital once those numbers catch up, because we do know that there is a little bit of a lag time, about a two week lag between uh, what we see in, when the numbers are reported and then what is reflected in the hospitals themselves. And so 
she says that she has to constantly be looking ahead and looking out for what might to uh, might be to come and what might be to come is uh, some very sobering numbers from the hospitals and what's available in terms of hospital capacity. Yeah, I mean, we see the pushback already to the mayor's vaccination program, uh, you know, to enter bars and restaurants and what have you that starts on September 13th. He himself said on this very program that if we hit 500, uh, that things could become a lot more drastic. And she doesn't really show any signs of slowing down. Um, the trends are very concerning. The other thing she talked about was the cluster reports and also how they're doing the contact tracing. Obviously, with these kind of numbers, they can't do, uh, they can't contact 10 contacts of every person who's infected. Um, they are seeing some clusters in schools. We know a lot of you had asked questions about schools in the past. Um, however, with mitigation measures, she says that she does still think that school is safe and that they are working very hard to make sure that students wear their masks and that even if you see a case reported in a school, it didn't necessarily originate there, that really what we're seeing is widespread throughout the community. Yeah, and so we will continue to track these numbers. And uh, it was just great hearing from her and hearing the trends and getting the scientific explanation behind some of the numbers that we report every single day. Uh, it becomes a daunting number at times when we see just these large numbers and, and how do we get out of this and how do we uh, see, see some uh, sense of hope in the midst of all of these crazy numbers. Uh, so Dr. Kimball really painting a realistic picture of where we're at and what we need to do in order to get out of this. We will continue this sort of conversation on Monday with another specialist in this field. That's right. We have infectious disease expert, Dr. Tim Brown from the East West Center. He has an amazing talk. Uh, it's on YouTube that he gave about three weeks ago about the impact of the Delta variant and why it is so prevalent in our community. There's an article in the paper today that says the majority of the cases, vast majority, almost all are the Delta variant here in Hawaii. And that is so much more infectious and the impact that has that has had. You know, we had this sort of window in the summer where we thought that things were really turning a corner and that we were getting to a place where at least vaccinated folks could hang out with other vaccinated folks. And then boom, it feels like that door is closing. So what's the X factor there? It's the Delta variant. And we're gonna be talking with him and get his projections for how long it's gonna to take to get out of this. If you go ahead and watch that YouTube video, you'll see that, um, it could take a number of years by his estimation. So we'll be talking to him on Monday. And then Lieutenant Governor Josh Green is joining us on Wednesday, followed by Mitch Roth next Friday. That is the mayor of Hawaii Island. They've been having a really tough time with hospitalizations there. And so how are they handling things? Uh, we're going to be talking to him next Friday. Remember, it is a holiday weekend. We know a lot of you may have gathering plans, but the state uh, and you know health officials are really asking folks to scale those back. We need to be safer at home because now is not the time to expose yourself uh, to people outside of your household. We thank you so much for tuning in here this morning. We'll see you right back here next week at 1030 for another full week of Spotlight Hawaii. Aloha. Aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii was brought to you by Chaminade University.